A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hello and welcome fellow time travelers. Great to have you with me as always. Here we go traveling around the world through time and space together because who wants to do that alone not me thanks again to everyone who has signed up to my patreon site if you don't know about patreon here are the basics you go on to patreon and subscribe to my channel uh, you part with a bit of cash and by joining up and making that contribution you become a member and your your investment helps to support all of the podcasts that Paul and I do together by subscribing, uh, you get access to lots of extra rewards, access to an exclusive weekly vodcast, which uh, Paul and I film here at my home in Stirling. Our Patreon site is a community, without a shadow of a doubt. It's full of free thinkers, history nuts, uh, and the ever curious, people with questions, uh, and also people who just want to listen to other people thinking out loud. Anyway, it's growing all the time and I would love to have you on board. Simply go to patreon.com, look for me by name, that's Neil Oliver, and follow the instructions, sign up, join us. Okay, now it's time to strap yourselves into the time machine for the next episode of my love letter to the world. Recorder, microphone, action. something out there we can't see it's like the force in Star Wars it's the same thing this idea that there's something there that we can't see and we can't feel and we can't touch but it matters more than anything that we can see and we can touch different perspectives faiths and viewpoints all seeking to explain the universe a place designed and built, a drama acted out, or a living thing, one vast organism. 81 verses, carrying within them an immutable principle of the universe and how to cope with unanswerable questions. Wisdom and ideas that have travelled around the world and through time, and that more than anything else are still valuable today right now this minute. Endeavouring to understand history in hopes of illuminating the future, I'm Neil Oliver and this is my love letter to the world. Hi Neil. In the last episode we walked with Buddha as he awoke to the nature of reality in his search for Nirvana. Which moment in history are we travelling to this week? Morning, Paul. Yes, last week we touched on the life of Buddha, which means the one who is awake. A great man whose genius and awakening has, and still does, 
influenced millions and billions of people. This week we're travelling to China in search of more great thinking and profound ideas that have stood the test of time and stayed the course for thousands of years. This week's moment is when the Tao Te Ching was born. It's a moment in the story of the world when another important thought crystallised in a single human brain. I've got a recurrent obsession, I suppose, with the idea that ideas that become global, ideas that spread around the world and eventually end up affecting millions or billions of people's lives, they must almost by definition, occur to someone first. Possibly more or less the same idea maybe occurs to more than one person in the same place and they get together and it propagates in that way. But it it seems to me unavoidable that the thought occurs to someone, some individual, first. And I, I love that idea. At the moment, there's a globalist idea, whoever's idea that was, that crystallised in a brain somewhere. That idea about collectivising, centralising, taking decisions and, and everything away from the disparate mass of the population. And that takes power and agency away from the individual. And I always feel there's a desperate necessity to maintain and remember the importance of the individual of what the individual is capable of there's obviously an argument for teamwork and being a team player but the most significant ideas have occurred to one person first ideas come from individuals and it's another it's another of those ideas this moment in the story of the world we're in we're in china and the, the key figure, or one of the key figures to talk about, is someone called Lao Tzu. Remember we talked about Homer and the Iliad and the Odyssey, and how, you know, over the years people have wondered if Homer ever existed as a single person. Was it a collaborative effort that's had a name stamped on it? Well, Lao Tzu, similarly... His name, people might think that Lao Tzu is his name, but it actually means the old master, as in a bit like a teacher, you know, a school master. So Lao Tzu is just the old master. So we don't even know this person's name, but whoever Lao Tzu was, somewhere around 400 years before the birth of Christ, he wrote down or framed in language a way of thinking that's come down to us as the Tao De Jing, which means the Tao Virtue Book, or the Way of Integrity. Tao, which is T-A-O, means the way. So Tao De Jing is the Way of Integrity, let's say. So it's the writing down in 81 verses, 81 little poems, if you like, of an understanding of the way of the universe, the way. There have been, broadly speaking, three big ways of understanding the universe or the cosmos or reality. Depends what word you want to put on it. But in relation to those big questions about, you know, what's it all about? (laughs) Why are we here? (laughs) 
the, the three big answers to that. In the West, we came to understand the universe as something that had been made by God, a complex artifact, a very, very sophisticated, fiddly bit of kit, assembled by, a, by, the, by the ultimate architect and engineer. Which really, I mean, it, it's, in, it's no coincidence that in the Jesus story, he's described as a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. Because that, apart from anything else, builds in the idea that here's someone who makes. And after all, Christianity is predicated upon the notion that he is the son of God, or God made flesh, so he knows how to make things. So, he's a carpenter, which at the time would have been the height of sophistication when it came to making and building. In India, in the subcontinent, as we've already considered, the universe totally differently. It's so important to, to try, I try in my bare of very little brain way to, to allow for all the other ways of understanding things that have been attempted. You know, rather than come down necessarily hard and fast on one, I like to keep on taking different viewpoints because the, the big ways of understanding the universe, it's like having different mountain tops on which to stand that give you a different view. And in India, you get a different view. Hinduism developed there. There's a wonderful English philosopher called Alan Watts. He died in the early 1970s. He was born in the, in the years around the sort of First World War. But he died in the 1970s, age, still quite young, I think no older than I am now. And he talks at length in lectures and in, in, in books and papers and essays about Hinduism. And he describes or he, re, he relates the notion that in India the universe was understood as a drama, a play. Something that was playing out. Once you sort of plunge into that deep water of Hinduism, it throws you for a loop. It takes a long time coming out of the West where we think of God as a craftsman who built, the, who built everything and made everything. It's very difficult to suddenly be confronted with a completely different way of thinking it. But in the subcontinent, there's this idea of the universe as being the consequence of God, Brahma, playing hide and seek with himself. One way of understanding the, the big idea out there is to think of everything, everything in existence being Brahma. You're God, I'm God, the trees are God, the grass is God. It's all him or it because it's, it's, it's all genders. It's, it's both genders. And the idea is that if you were an, an all-seeing, all-knowing entity, it would get boring because, you, you know, You've already seen the end of the film. You know it. You're everywhere and nowhere, baby. You understand everything. You've seen everything. You know everything. It's boring. And, and part of the concept of Hinduism, that to escape from it, Brahma goes to sleep and is then in a dream. And the dream is, is all of us. And it means that he gets to experience existence without knowing how it plays out. So part of it's happening through being you, part of it's happening through being me, part of it's happening through being a daisy in the grass. It relieves Brahma of the onerous, yoke-like obligation of knowing everything 
all the time. He gets to have an adventure. And according to the way it's worked out, the dream lasts for a very, very, very long time. And then every now and again he wakes up. Or I shouldn't keep saying he, but I'm just saying he for simplicity. Could be she. It's everything anyway. That entity wakes up and thinks, wow, that was fantastic. And is then awake for another very, very, very long time. Then gets bored again and goes back to sleep. To hide from knowing everything. So part of the Hindu tradition is, is of the notion of God playing hide and seek. He hides from his own knowledge of everything by dreaming so that everything works out like a long play. And, and within that, obviously, it's, it's endlessly complicated. There's, there's an endlessly repeating cycle of life and death. Everyone's born, lives, dies, is born again, and so on and so on. There's this endless cycle of it. But the bigger picture eventually is of everything being conjured into being like a dream by Brahma. And then at the end, it's destroyed. And then it starts again. There's this endless cycle. Now, it's a fant- apart from anything else, it's just a wonderfully exciting and innovative, different way to think about what's going on. You can wallow in it like water. You can just slosh around in the idea. Uh, and no lesser figure, really, than Carl Sagan. Remember the American cosmologist with the fantastic voice who narrated Cosmos and wrote the book, the, the wonderful imaginative, the beautiful prose of the way in which he explained everything. Well, Carl Sagan was aware, he was aware that the Hindu approach to understanding everything was actually running parallel to the most modern science of the day. You know, to quote him directly in Cosmos, he wrote and said, The Hindu religion is the only one of the world's great faiths dedicated to the idea that the cosmos itself undergoes an immense, indeed an infinite number of deaths and rebirths. It is the only religion in which the timescales correspond to those of modern scientific cosmology. Its cycles run from our ordinary day and night to a day and night of Brahma, the creator god of Hinduism, 8.64 billion years long, longer than the age of Earth or the Sun and about half the time since the Big Bang, and there are much longer timescales still. So, Carl Sagan noticed that Hinduism has within it now, Hinduism's thousands of years old, and yet it has within it some kind of innate understanding that this that we experience has been going on for a very, very long time. It's the only one of the old faiths that conceptualises reality and existence against such unimaginably long timescales. That in itself, you know, makes Hinduism interesting. I, 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 I don't know, I can't remember why I started thinking about this again in the last couple of weeks, but I know what it is. Uh, you know how CERN, the Large Hadron Collider, has fired up again? <laughs> They've thrown the big switch on that again. So whatever it is that they do in that great big 40-mile-long circular tunnel under Switzerland, they're doing it again. 
And I remembered that outside one of the entrances to CERN, there's a big statue of Shiva. You know, we've talked about Shiva as, you know, foundational within Hinduism. You know, it's an, another another idea of, of a god. Actually, as he, as he appears at CERN, he's Shiva the Destroyer. He appears inside, I think it's a, it's a, a casting of bronze or some other metal. And he's inside a, a big circle, appropriately enough, given what, given what the Large Hadron Collider looks like. And the figure is dancing. Because as we've discussed before, that Shiva, in some versions of the events, dances the universe into existence. And then keeps it going until eventually another manifestation of God destroys it all. Sometimes depicted as Kali. But in any event, it's part of that cycle, that circular motion of coming and going, being and not being, life and death. And I thought, how weird that 21st century scientists at CERN have a statue of Shiva. It's a gift from from India, Indian scientists. But it's an interesting conflation of very old with very new. You know, that Shiva is acknowledged there. And that, that cycle of coming and going, being and not being, Big Bang and whatever happens at the other end is depicted there. So that's I find that extremely interesting. So we talked about you know, it's this idea of there being different, different perspectives and three big ideas. The West and the universe is something made by God as a complicated machine. Then Hinduism or the subcontinent where it's imagined as a, as a dream or a play, a drama, uh, something in which... The creator entity, the creator deity, frees himself from knowing by playing hide and seek with himself. Well, there's a third way of looking at things, and it comes out of China. I mentioned the name at the top of this, Lao Tzu, the old master. Sometime around 400 BC, whoever he was, he wrote down, if you like, the Tao Te Ching. The way of integrity. So that would have been an oral tradition. That yeah. Is. Again, you know, we keep we keep coming over this. The, the oldest ideas were oral first. You know, you've got the Rig Veda, Upanishads. You've got the poems of Enheduanna. All of these ideas that had to start out in a preliterate world as oral traditions. Same goes for the idea of the way, Tao, the way. Lao Tzu wrote it that he framed it best around 400 BC, but he didn't, he didn't think it up. He just wrote it down and framed it in a comprehensible form. So we'll, we'll come back to him. Before Lao Tzu, sometime between six, around 600 BC, coming towards 500 BC, somewhere in there, there was a figure called Confucius, who everyone's heard of, Confucianism. Confucius is a corruption, really, of the name Kung Fu Tzu, it wouldn't have been pronounced Confucius in China, 600 BC. It's Kung Fu Tzu. He was a bureaucrat. You know, when we talked about ancient Egypt, it depended upon the organisational skills of specially trained office workers, bureaucrats who made things happen. They were able to pull together the people and the, and the materials and the food and the drink to keep people alive while they built the pyramids and the rest of it. Well... Kung Fu Tzu, Confucius was a bureaucrat, but at some point in his life he turned philosopher. 
He turned his back on his life as an administrator and became a philosopher teacher. And what he framed Confucianism, a way of thinking, was to affect Chinese thinking for the next two millennia, right up until the communist revolution, in fact. The communists took Confucianism apart because it didn't, didn't please them. But Confucianism worked so well for so many people in that part of the world that it lasted for 2,000 years and more. And what he taught was that the world is a happier place, society is a happy place, a family is happy when everyone accepts his or her place. A place for everyone and everyone in their place and being happy about it. Everyone accepting that by them being in their place, doing what they're supposed to do, they're helping to keep the bigger picture working. It was about neat and rigid hierarchy. You know, accepting an emperor at the top of a pyramid coming down to a broad base at the bottom of the people, of the peasantry. All of them submitting. All of them accepting that they were where they were supposed to be and that the world would be a functioning place if they would just get on and do it without complaint. It's all about respect for family first. Knowing that you're not as important as the family you know, if you have to be sacrificed for the good of the family, then then fine. And then likewise, if you have to be sacrificed for the good of the community or for society, or if the family has to be sacrificed for the good of the community or for society or for the emperor or the empire, then so be it. That's Confucianism. Everything's straight and orderly and everyone accepting it. And this is running in parallel. Well, it's Confucius knew about the way. Or he would have known about the way, because the way was already an idea by the time of Confucius. But what he framed was something different. It was his own idea, you know, this idea of, of accepting your place. And I suppose the point is that while he was doing that, the way was, was there, amorphous and floating about. The way is older than anything Confucius was thinking about. And it may have influenced his thinking, but Confucius still came to the conclusion, and he was right, I suppose, in as much as millions, billions of people accepted his way of thinking, was all about order. But the way was there at the same time. And a couple of hundred years after Confucius's time, it's Lao Tzu who puts it into words and writes it down for the first time. It's been translated into English, into every language, over and over again. Some translations being more effective and, and affecting than others. I'm very struck by, and have been for a long time, a 1904 translation of the, of the Tao Te Ching, The Way of Integrity, by a writer called Chuta Kao. And I quote, There is a thing inherent and natural that existed before heaven and earth, Motionless and fathomless, it stands alone and never changes. It pervades everywhere and yet never becomes exhausted. It may be regarded as the mother of the universe. I do not know its name. I am forced to give it a name. I call it Tao and name it as Supreme. So that's a, that's a neat encapsulation of what Tao, the way, is. Now, I listened to that. Inherent and natural, existed before heaven and earth, motionless and fathomless, stands alone and never changes. 
mother of the universe. Now, there in the Tao Te Ching, there's surely a suggestion that the way is also in the same big box as dark matter that they go looking for with the Large Hadron Collider at CERN and in other places. Because physicists tell us that the visible universe is, is made mostly, 70-80%, they think, of something we can't see. Dark matter. And there's dark energy also. Now, I'm no physicist. I can't get my head around it. I just have the... I brush past these ideas like a stranger in the crowd. But there's an idea that most of what reality is made of is something we can't detect. Now, modern physicists have come to that conclusion in the 20th century, and they're still working on it now in the 21st. But somehow, the way has an echo of the same idea, something inherent and natural that existed before heaven and earth, motionless and fathomless. It stands alone and never changes, pervades everywhere and never becomes exhausted. It's the mother of the universe. I don't know its name. We don't know its name either. You know, we call it dark matter. They called it the way. Something inherent and immutable that they were aware of. And it amazes me that what we need the Large Hadron Collider to look for, Chinese people thousands of years ago somehow inherently understood that it's there. These ideas are ghosting in the background, ghosts in the machine. Hinduism and the timescales that run to billions of years, endless cycles. Then in the way, in Taoism, again, you've got this idea that there's something out there we can't see. It's like the force in Star Wars. <laughs> it's the same thing. This idea that there's something there that we can't see and we can't feel and we can't touch. But it matters more than anything that we can see and we can touch. You know, we call it dark matter. And the, and the ancient Chinese called it the way. I find that mind-expanding. It opens up all sorts of possibilities, I suppose, really. Because in the West, because for thousands of our thousands of years, we've, we've decided that the universe is something that was made by someone really, really clever, it brings with it the notion that we might understand it completely, like any machine. You know, it's like somebody brought forward a, an Apache helicopter from out of nowhere. But if they gave us it, that scientists could unpick it and eventually come to understand it, even though they don't know where it came from, they could reverse engineer it. So we've got that preoccupation. And it means that in the West, we believe that there are answers to every question under the sun. And that drives us quietly mad. <laughs> because there are still questions we can't answer. And, and it drives scientists to distraction with their string theories and, and all the rest of it. In the Chinese way of thinking, the old Chinese way of thinking, before communism and the rest, that way of thinking looked on our way of thinking and thought we were just making life unnecessarily hard for ourselves. Because if you subscribe to an acceptance of the way, implicit within it is the notion that there are unknowable things. And there are unanswerable questions. And you accept that and move on. 
Taoists look on our preoccupation with answering every question and think that our philosophy just gives us endless, incurable, unnecessary angst. In the early days of Christianity, for example, you know, in the, in the first decades and, and century, first two or three centuries after Jesus Christ, the old church fathers were coming up with all sorts of different ideas about what Christianity meant, what it was, who God was, how to understand God, how to understand Jesus. You know, and they and they fell out with one another, and people were were dismissed as heretics and persecuted for for wrong think. You know, people were cancelled and deplatformed. All the same things were happening there and then, but. Well, agnosticism has come down to, as we think of an agnostic, as being somebody who just doesn't really have a hard and fast line on anything. Don't know. Not sure. Do you believe in God? Mm, I don't really know. What's God? Mm, Not sure. We define that as agnosticism and people who talk and think that way as agnostic. But agnos, agnosia, is Greek. And it it implies a kind of a, a hidden knowledge, a dark knowledge and also, also in those early years of, of Christianity, there's a figure called Dionysius the Areopagite. The Areopagus was a rock, a high point in Athens, where people used to gather to, to discuss, to talk things, to think through big thoughts. And Paul, St. Paul, in his early mission to take Christianity to the wider world, he turned up in Athens in the first century AD, and he preached. And... There was an idea in Athens at the time of the temple to the unknown God. And Paul said, that unknown God is God. Is the one God. You've stumbled on, on the one God there. And one of the people listening to Paul at the Areopagus was Dionysius, who becomes Saint Dionysius. He's actually Saint-Denis in Paris. Long story, we'll get to it another time. And Dionysius the Areopagite wrote some books. He became converted to Christianity and he wrote some books. And he wrote about, amongst other things, he wrote a treatise about that God can be understood in terms of what we can't know. This idea that God's not that, he's not this, he's certainly not that. Much in the way that a sculptor envisions a, a form within a rock, and removes the extraneous material to reveal what is there all along. You're taking away what is not the desired creation. And so some of what Dionysius the Areopagite was saying was kind of like, you can come to God by taking away the things that he isn't. And bizarrely, that overlaps with part of the contemporary and earlier in Indian Hindu thinking. There's a, a sort of neti-neti, God isn't that, he's not, this is what he's not. There's a way of thinking about answers to questions which is predicated upon only knowing what God isn't. And, and in its fullest form, there's the idea that we can never know God. You have to accept that. We can neither see, nor experience, nor come in contact with God. He's unknowable. He is the answer to the unaskable question. He's the unknowable answer, such that if you even think that you've seen God or understood God, then the very fact that you think you saw him or you think you understood him means it's something else that's not God. I've sort of disappeared up my own backside with all of that. But but do you see what I mean? That there are these there are these ways in which there are commonalities between all these various ways of thinking 
And after all, these groups are all vaguely in touch with one another from time to time. Ideas bleed and seep into other areas and start to affect other people's thinking. But to come back to the point, the idea of the Taoists is that you accept that there are things you cannot know. There are questions that are not worth asking. And that by accepting that, you lead a happier life. So just as I said at the top, it's just it's just an interesting way to think about about these things. And so I think about it in terms of I often think about in other areas I talk about how the the past gives me reassurance about the present because things have happened before, and I like to go back and look at how people coped with situations that are sort of analogous to where we find ourselves and thinking, well, if they got through it, we can get through it. And how did they get through it? And in any event, how did events play out? And so we're living in... We're living in troubled times, without a doubt. And within... There's an answer to that in the way. In the the way of integrity. There's advice about leaders and leadership. That if people are not trusted... If human nature itself is not trusted, then what arises is a threat of a drift into totalitarianism. Part of the way is that people are to be trusted, that you have to trust people, that leaders have to trust people to get on with things. And here it is from the way. The best leaders are those the people hardly know exist. The next best is a leader who is loved and praised. Next comes the one who is feared. The worst one is the leader that is despised. If you don't trust the people, they will become untrustworthy. Now, how useful is that way of thinking? Out of the East, from thousands of years ago, if you don't trust the people, they'll become untrustworthy. That's what's happening. I've long felt that the most prominent leaders in the world are the most frightened people that have ever lived. Xi Jinping, okay, in, well, communist China, if China truly is communist anymore, whatever it is, it's a totalitarian regime. They're further down the road towards having a completely submitted, docile, obedient population. Now, I look on at someone like Xi Jinping and see the most frightened man in the world. He operates like that because the people terrify him. He certainly doesn't trust them. And so, again, as we've said before, in the story of the world, I think it's worth noticing how old the good ideas are. And that having been conjured into being, they then last forever because they're right. For all their faults, Christianity, the Judeo-Christian tradition, Hinduism, the way, Confucianism, they work because they've got something of value in them. And that's why people don't forget them. More to the point, that's why people go out of their way to remember them. And so, what I think about, in terms of the moment in the story of the world, that while Lao Tzu, the old master, wrote it down, at some point, inside the firing synapses, in the brain of someone we will never know, the way occurred to someone for the first time. It must have done. And I love to think of that whenever it happened. You know, like a star being born in the darkness of forever. That 
popped into being in someone's head and propagated and spread. Then around 400 BC, Lao Tzu wrote it best. He framed it in the best possible way. It teaches us that I think that we need to get away from the globalising, centralised thinking. We've been made to forget everything. We've been made to forget how to grow food. We've been made to forget how to make things from start to finish. You know, we live in a world of constant, unstoppable, unforgivable waste. Endless rape of the world. And there has to be a wholesale reconsidering of how better to live in the world. And it's there, poem number 13 in the Tao Te Ching is, surrender yourself humbly, then you can be trusted to care for all things. Love the world as your own self, then you can be truly trusted to care for all things. That's two and a half thousand years old. It was right then and it's right now. We should pay attention. Babylon and an all-powerful empire built in the cradle of civilization. Nebuchadnezzar, the legendary king whose name reverberates down through history. Great wealth, influence and display. And the Hanging Gardens, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. Next time in my love letter to the world. To help support this podcast and to get access to new and exclusive history and comment vodcasts every week, Sign up to my Neil Oliver Patreon site. It would be great to see you there. Check out the Instagram account called Neil Oliver Love Letter. My YouTube channel, simply called the Neil Oliver Channel. And to help build this podcast, please tell your friends about it. Get them listening and write a review to convince the online crowd to join us. For further reading about these moments in time, you could try my book. It's called The Story of the World in 100 Moments and it's published by Transworld. Neil Oliver's Love Letter to the World is produced by Paul Ratcliffe and Neil Oliver for Fat Belly Films. Music's composed by Milo McKinnon. Social media and YouTube producer is Oscar CFR. Additional research is by Evie, Lucian, Archie and Teddy. The finance is taken care of by Catherine and Trudy. Post-production is by Althorpe Studios and the graphics are by Paul Plowman. Thanks for listening. This has been an FBF Podcasts production. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. 
If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.